Well, good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, for those of you I haven't met, um, it's a joy and an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you so much for gathering with us for worship. Um, uh, we gather here every week as a family uh, uh, to be reminded of the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are as a result of that, the, the people that God has made us into. If this is your first time here or if you're new to the church uh, or if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, the first thing I want you to know is that you're welcome here. We're so glad that you've joined us. Um, Sojourn is a safe place for you um, to, to explore the faith, to explore what it, what it means that Christians say that the Bible is true. Um, in your process of searching, um, this is a safe place for you. We're so glad that you have chosen here uh, to, to join us this morning. Uh, this morning, I have the honor of preaching from God's word to you from Exodus chapter 12, as you heard Nathaniel read. Um, This summer, we've been in a sermon series walking through the book of Exodus together. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and the book of Exodus really gives a kind of foundationally important, uh, foundational account of the history of God's people. This is uh, the, it tells the story of kind of the seminal deliverance event from the history of God's people of old, people of Israel, um, in a way that kind of shatters forward into the history of the rest of God's people, even into the present. And so, um, so the book of Exodus is a story about God's people of old. These events take place somewhere 3,200, 3,400 years ago. Um, but this story is our story as God's people. Coming out, it comes out of Genesis um, to place us uh, in a little bit of context. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, and at the end of Genesis, we're told the story of the, the three primary patriarchs of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob uh, receives the name Israel, Israel has 12 sons and those become the 12 tribes of what become the nation of Israel. Uh, One of those sons is a son named Joseph and Joseph winds up in Egypt um, in a process that I won't go into right now, but he winds up in Egypt and Joseph's placement in Egypt and his welcoming of his family into Egypt is how uh, the Israelites got into Egypt in the first place. And so this is a young people, a young family. Joseph uh, uh, and his descendants are, uh, and his brothers and their descendants are the ones who populate um, uh, so bountifully in Egypt. The book of Exodus begins with the Israelites' fruitful multiplication throughout the land to the point where they become enslaved because the Egyptians are worried, man, they're getting to be so numerous, so powerful, so strong, they're gonna rise up and revolt. And so they enslave them and it is that situation where this book starts. They cry out to God for deliverance um, and in response to their cry for deliverance, God raises up Moses, this unlikely deliverer to lead his people out from under the hand of Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt. And, um, and God has done this so far as we've seen in this series by sending uh, Moses to the people and sending Moses into Pharaoh and sending a series of plagues against Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention to let his people go. Uh, and at this point in our journey through the book of Exodus, this sermon actually marks the halfway point Uh, in this series. This is sermon eight in a planned 15-week series through the book of Exodus. Uh, And it's fitting that this is the halfway point because this morning we come to the passage from which this book gets its name, Exodus. We come to the actual Exodus itself. God sends the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn, strikes down the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. The Israelites are released and they're pressed to leave Egypt and so they do so. And then they stamp, uh, God stamps in their memories how it is that they're to remember this day. That's the passage that we're in this morning. Uh, And what I wanna do is 
zoom in on a few of the details that were given in the text of this passage, uh, drawing out some of the things I think that God doesn't want us to miss as we look at this historical narrative um, that we're given about the history of God's people. Right as I begin, I do, I don't usually do that. I, I wanna pray though. Would you, would you pray with me? This has been kind of a battle for me, so let me, let me pray, mostly for me, but also for all of us. God, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. We know that you're here. We ask that you would fill us all as we open your word together. I pray um, that you would um, give me the words to say, that you would clarify these thoughts so that they might be used by you and your spirit to make us, conform us more into the likeness of Christ. Captivate us, we ask, Lord, through your word with the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me start this way. My wife and I moved into the house that we're in uh, just over a year ago. And soon after we moved in, our new next door neighbor, uh, who's an older gentleman, uh, was sitting on his porch swing. So I walked over to meet him. Uh, It's a guy named Richard. We exchanged the usual opening questions um, that you tend to exchange when you meet someone for the first time. Hey, how, how are you? How long have you lived here? Um, great, just moved in a week ago. Great, uh, saw you move in. You know, and then you know, what, what have you done? He's an older gentleman, been retired for a number of years. Um, and uh, uh, he shared with me that he's a veteran. He was in, a ser- in service for a number of years before moving to a phone company where he worked until he retired. Uh, and I shared with him that I'm a Christian pastor getting ready to start a new church in the area. Uh, I'm a church planter preparing to start a church uh, in the Braveswood Place area. And his response caught me a little bit off guard. He went back and told me more about his military service. He told me that in his service, he'd been stationed in Germany for a time and that he'd had a chance, they'd, they'd, they'd given him a chance to go visit the concentration camps in Germany, the old vacant concentration camps from the Holocaust. And he then said to me, he said, you know, back when I was in the service, you know, I was stationed in Germany, I went and you know something, when I saw those concentration camps where all them Jews were held and killed, he looked at me, he said, from that moment, I've known that there wasn't a God because how could there be a God and that God be any good if he let something like that happen? And so that was some meeting. I'd said, hi, I'm a pastor. He said, hi, I don't believe there's a God. There can't be. (laughs) Great to meet you. See you later. No, we talked for a little bit. I asked him more questions about his experience and we have a, we continue to talk uh, every now and then uh, whenever we see each other. Well, the reason I tell you that story uh, is that I think that to go back just a bit in his story at the heart of what you told me is a question that I think all of us have. At the foundation of his question that he answered, he concluded there, there must not be a God is the question, where is God? Where's God in this? Where was God in that? If there was a God, how can this be explained? How can that have happened? Why is this happening? Where is God? As we consider the story that we're reading in the Bible, this story about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, I want you to put yourself for just a moment in the shoes of the Hebrews, the Israelites. What would it have been like to be one of them right now here in this story? You've been making, uh, here in history, you've been, you've been making bricks for the Egyptians to build their cities for your whole life. Your parents did it before you, their parents did it before them. Things have been getting worse and worse for you and your family and for the families around you in slavery and you've been crying out to this God of your ancestors, a God who you've been told exists, but you're probably wondering, is there any point to this? 
if God existed, where has he been? Why has he been letting these things happen? And then all of a sudden, this man Moses comes, who's been a fugitive on the run from Egypt for having killed a man, and he says, all right, I'm here to tell you that God has sent me to deliver you. That probably brings up a bunch of your questions, a bunch of questions in your mind as, a, as an ancient Hebrew. Right? Well, that's great. How is he gonna do this? Where are we gonna go? But they've never seen any other land. And as we look back on this story as 21st century hearers, we probably have some questions of our own, many questions. Uh, in fact, most of which I don't think we have answers to. We ask these questions. Where has God been this whole time? Why now? Right, why, why not earlier? Why not prevent this suffering of his people in the first place? We can make guesses as to the answers of those questions. Maybe it's that God's character wouldn't have been displayed rightly without an event like this taking place. Maybe it's that the nations of the earth wouldn't have come to know God as he truly is without this event. Maybe God's people needed to go through this in order to see God for who he truly is. Ultimately, we don't know the answers to those questions though. What we do know, what I do know, um, is that even when I can't answer those questions of why, um, what I do know is that the world is a mess. It's a big mess, a mess that according to the Bible, humanity has brought upon ourselves through sin, but somehow, somehow miraculously, God keeps using the mess of this world for his purposes, for his glory, and for the good of those who love him. I do know that. I don't know why. I don't know how long. But I do know that somehow, time and again, throughout the scriptures, throughout the history of the human experience, God keeps turning the mess of this world around, giving little glimpses of the restoration that he desires to bring to all of creation one day. And we get a clear picture of that in this passage, I think. In the first point, I wanna see three things. There's three points for this morning. This first point, I wanna look at God and how God is described for us. And we see, I think, three things about how God is described for us. We see God working, we see God watching, and we see God guiding his people. First, we see God working. God is described for us as a God who is active. God is very active in this story and he's active even when his people don't know that he is. Think about the events of this book leading up to this point. Again, picture being one of the Israelites. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter three, no one else knew. God was working. He was showing this amazing sign to this man Moses. But for the other 99.9% of his people, They had no idea that was taking place. They couldn't see it, but he was working for them. We even see this in this central event of the Exodus. This is our passage for today. Look at chapter 12, verse 29. It's the first verse. It says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of the livestock. And then it says, so the Lord strikes this down and strikes them down. And then in verse 30, it says, and Pharaoh rose in the night. There was a great cry in Egypt for there's not a house where someone was dead. Then he summoned for Moses and Aaron and says, "Up, go out from my people. See, over the past few weeks, we've seen that God had told Moses and his people that he was going to strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Here, God actually does it. It's an incredible exercise of power. God brings judgment to every house in Egypt, except for those of his people who had applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their doorposts. And as this is happening though, his people are sitting there waiting. It's quiet in their homes. They don't know what's happening. I saw a part of a documentary 
on TV a couple of weeks ago about the space race between the US and Russia to put Sputnik and I forget what the name of the Russian, it might have been, anyway, sorry. They were trying to put satellites into outer space and they launched and there were all these failed launches, but there was this moment where when, the, when they were first successful at, at launching a satellite into space, this happened both for the Russians and for the Americans, they launched it into space and then they waited. There was radio silence for 90 minutes. It turned out to be like 96 minutes, which those six minutes... It was supposed to be 90, but it was 96 minutes, and those seconds were an eternity. They had no idea that they had been successful. They had been successful at the moment of the launch. Things had already happened according to plan as they needed to, but they didn't know until they heard that beep just over 90 minutes later. All right, similarly here, in the plague of the firstborn, God had already done it. He'd already shown this, this amazing exhibition of his power, in judgment over the Egyptians and his people were sitting waiting. Did, did it work? Did God do it? It wasn't until Pharaoh sent to Moses and Aaron saying, up, get out of here, that they knew God's plan for their deliverance had worked. Before they even knew though, he had done it. In other words, God is always working. Even behind the scenes, that is in ways that we cannot see for his own glory and for the good of his people. Throughout time, we've had a really hard time understanding this. That age-old question, where is God? What is he doing? How can he possibly be working through this? That question comes up time and again in my life. It comes up likely time and again in your life. It has throughout the history of humanity. It comes up in the Bible time and again, both implicitly and explicitly in the Psalms. One of the most well-known refrains is the psalmist's crying out time and again, where are you, O God? With Jesus, at the end of his life, when his followers saw him hanging on the cross, dying, they were wondering, how could this have happened? This is our Lord. This is the the Savior. How could this have happened? He's dying. What are we going to do now? But as with that horrific event of Jesus on the cross, which turned out to be none other than God's plan for saving the world, we see that time and again, while we may not see now how things can possibly work out for good, we can take God at his word that as it says in Romans chapter eight, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a really hard verse to believe. It's quoted often. But we can be confident that for those who love God, all things, not most things, all things work together somehow. That's my insertion for good. So the first thing we see here is that we see God working. Even when his people can't see him working, he is. He's a God who works on behalf of his people. Second thing we see about God is that we see that God is a God who watches over his people. Look at verse 42. On that night, the night that God brought his people out from the land of Egypt, we're given this really interesting descriptor for for what God has been doing. It says, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching. And here, I think we see something quite profound. Notice what this characteristic of God, that God is watching, is contrasted with. Back in verse 30, there's this phrase, it says, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. Pharaoh arose in the night. In other words, when disaster strikes his nation, the Pharaoh's eyes are closed. He's asleep. In the Egyptian religion, this is particular, this is what makes it profound. In the Egyptian religion, Egypt was seen as being, they were seen as being ruled over this large cohort of gods 
And Pharaoh, who was seen, the king of Egypt, who was seen as a deity himself, functioned as the intermediary between the kingdom of Egypt and the rest of their gods. One of the most recognizable symbols of deity, I think I've said this here before, uh, in ancient Egypt was the eye. You may have seen depictions of prominent eyes that appear throughout surviving Egyptian writings, Egyptian artwork. The Egyptian pharaohs were well known for having prominent makeup around their eyes linking to the god of the eye as, the god, as they, were the, they were the eyes of the gods. The pharaohs were the eyes of the gods. And here's the point. Here, in this kind of ironic turn of events, when God brings judgment on Egypt, the plague of the firstborn, right? This awful, awful act of power and judgment. The Pharaoh, the eye of Egypt, this God-man who was supposed to be the protector of his people was asleep. He had to be woken up in order to deal with the calamity that had befallen his people. See, as human beings, we tend to look to all kinds of other things to watch over us, but none of them can. All of them will fail. And really, we see here in the Egyptians kind of the epitome of the human condition without God, a whole nation of people relying on what the eye can see. But God, who has sent all of these plagues, as we've observed already in this sermon series, as I mentioned earlier also, God, as a direct onslaught against these so-called gods of Egypt, is sending a clear message to them also to the Israelites, to you and to me in this final plague, he's saying, I am the God who sees. While the gods of Egypt were asleep, I was watching. The eyes of those you trust in will fail you. Your own eyes will fail you. But I am always watching. Psalm 121 is this beautiful depiction of the Lord. It begins, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, from the Lord who made heaven and earth and it ends by saying, God never slumbers nor sleeps. We have a God who watches. He sees all things. He will not be caught asleep on the job. What's important, in other words, is not what you see, but what God sees. You see what's in your field of view, and he sees everything. He sees the beginning and the end, and he is guiding things. He is working, bringing things to his intended ends. His plan will not be thwarted. We see what we can see, and we don't see most of that. We cannot see even a minute into the future, much less how God might be using these present circumstances or past circumstances in eternity to come, but God sees it, and he's working always guiding things to his intended ends, which brings me to the third thing we see about God in his passage. Third, uh, simply, we see God guiding his people. God is guiding his people. This is a simple enough observation that I don't want us to miss briefly before we move on. We saw how God works on behalf of his people even when we don't know that he's working on our behalf. We see how God watches over his people, that he watches, he sees everything that we can trust that he who sees the end from the beginning is working to bring about his intended purposes in all things. But God doesn't just work on behalf of and watch over his people. He also draws near to them, guiding them himself and bringing them himself out of Egypt. Look at verse 43, it says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. Verse 51, it says, on the very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts, 
Here's what I'm trying to say. Think about what these verses don't say. It doesn't say, and Moses and Aaron, having been inspired by God, did all of these things. It doesn't say, and on that very day, the people of Israel walked out of the land of Egypt by their hosts, just as God had said would happen. It doesn't say that. I mean, that's a true, that's a true statement. Those are both true statements, but that's not how it's recorded for us in scripture. This isn't a story about God telling Moses what to do back in chapter three and then sitting back to watch what happens. This is a story about God who tells Moses what's gonna happen in chapter three and then walks with him and with Aaron and with all of his people every step of the way on their journey. God is with his people. God is guiding his people. That's why in verse 51, it doesn't say on that very day the people walked out of Egypt. Instead, it says on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. He doesn't give them a map and say, see you there. He walks this road of deliverance with them as their leader and their guide. And so that's point one. And this greatest act of deliverance, the first thing I want us to notice is that the emphasis in this passage and really in this whole book is, is, is on God himself. The God who works, who watches, who guides his people. God is the actor he is the author and the finisher of this act of deliverance in the book of Exodus. Next thing, having looked at God, let's look now at God's people, point two. Let's look at what this says about God's people. The first thing that strikes us, I think, is how obedient God's people were to the words that God spoke to them. Look back with, with me at verse 28. This is just before our passage, the, the last verse before our passage. Just after God gave these kind of meticulous instructions for the Passover feast, uh, he, he gave them instructions. This is how you avoid this awful plague, this plague of the firstborn. We're told this, which is the verse immediately, like I said, preceding our passage. We're told, then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. They did everything, in other words, that they were told with the Passover, verse 28. And then in verses 34 and 39, we see kind of this, they're talking about the same thing. We see that they took no provisions with them, God's people, except unleavened bread dough, and then they baked, in verse 39, these unleavened bread cakes, just as God had said that they would do. And then also we're told, verse 35, that the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. That's, that phrase keeps getting repeated, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. This was in keeping, verse 35, with what God had told Moses both back in chapter 11, verses two and three, and chapter three, verses 21 and 22. And finally, verse 50, we're told all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. It's repeated for us time and again how obedient the Israelites were to the word the Lord spoke, them, spoke to them through Moses and Aaron. And if you think with me for just a moment, this is, this is, um, this is astonishing, right? If you put yourself in your shoes uh, in their shoes again with me for just a moment. This is a people who had little to no experience worshiping God and obeying his word. Right? They had been in Egypt for 430 years with no formal worship of God. This is before any kind of tabernacle or temple worship had been established, thousand years before the first synagogue. The stories of Joseph, this patriarch who earned them favor in Egypt and was the means by which God sustained and brought this growing family of Israel to Egypt in the first place, that story about Joseph was a distant memory. Think about it, the United States uh, are just 240 years old, our nation. Think about how much change we've experienced 
culturally and historically in the past 240 years. And then think about how much change would have happened throughout the many generations of Israelites who had been in Egypt for 430 years, the latter half of that at least being enslaved to the Egyptians. That's nearly half a millennium. This was a very different people than the patriarchs and their families that we read of in the book of Genesis. They weren't accustomed to hearing from God or, or to obeying his word. From elsewhere in the Bible, we know that during their time in Egypt, they'd even begun to worship the gods of Egypt. And so they weren't necessarily religiously distinct from the Egyptians. So this was not, in other words, here's the picture I think we see. This was not a people who were waiting for a prophet of God to bring them his word. So when we read the, the statement with that in mind, verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, we are rightly struck by this reality. It's nothing short of a miraculous move of God within the hearts of his people to bring them to a place of such willing obedience to God. Think about for a moment what they were asked to do and with what perfect obedience they did what they were asked to do. For, the one, for, for one, it's a miracle that the word of the Passover even got around God's people so quickly. Verse 37 says there were 600,000 men plus women and children who were brought out of Egypt. That's a lot of people. Most scholars put this around 2 million, between 2 and 3 million people who were in Egypt who left Egypt in the event of the Exodus. There were no emergency text notifications in those days. Right? There's no social media. There's no way for Moses and Aaron to get this very specific message about the Passover around to his people with, with, with specificity, right? They didn't have microphones. They, they didn't rent the local Egyptian arena that sat 2 million people. Yet somehow the word that came to Moses and Aaron was effectively communicated and perfectly obeyed by the entirety of the Israelites. It says all, right? All the people of Israel did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so the communication itself, just for starters, was miraculous. But also think of the two specific things they were told to do. One, verse 35, they were told, right, the Israelites were told to ask the Egyptians for gold, silver, and clothing for their journey. Right, this is a particularly neat detail in one sense, if you think about it. Um, this was God's way, one of God's ways of providing for his people for the journey that, that, that was to come. It was fulfillment of not just the words that had come before in Exodus, but back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 430 years earlier, God had said, I'm gonna lead you out and you're gonna, you're gonna be enriched from the spoils of your oppressors. But that aside, imagine what it would have been like to have been in this moment, <laughs> imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite told to ask the Egyptians for gold, silver, and clothing. Right? They'd been enslaved, enslaved for hundreds of years. But they'd had Egyptians as harsh taskmasters over them. They were decidedly not in the favor of the Egyptians. The Egyptians, though, uh, God told them to go to the Egyptians, these people who had already lost their crops, their food, their cattle, their firstborn children in the plagues that God had sent, and God says, okay, go ask for them for their treasures too. How absurd must that have seemed for God's people? I can just picture them thinking, there's no way, God, but they did it. Somehow, every single one of them obeyed the word of the Lord. Verse 36, verse 35, they asked for 36, the Lord had given the people favor miraculously in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. It's astonishing. The second thing, think about the Exodus itself. 
that God asked them to do. This is, many, many commentators point out how remarkable it is that they all left Egypt together that very day. Think about that for a moment. It says they left on that very day, all of a sudden, as verse 39 tells us, without having prepared any provisions for themselves. I'm sure um, there were probably some optimistic Israelites who said, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it'll work out. I probably would have been one of them, for those of you who know me, right? It's all gonna be great, we're gonna, we'll, we'll figure it out. God's gonna get us, right? But chances are there were also likely some wiser, uh, a little bit more thoughtful Israelites, like maybe a mom or two or 10,000, who would have said, hang on, right? We're leaving our homes all of a sudden with just what we can carry headed to a land we've never been to and we're gonna ask the Egyptians on the way out to give us some supplies. That's our plan. But noticeably absent in this account, right, is any indication of delay or waiting around to make preparations for departure. None of it. I'm an optimist and that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. There's no indication that they waited around. They just brought their unleavened dough and bread bowls, just as God had said. They took off, asking the Egyptians for their stuff on the way out. God provided it and they kept going. I mean, it's hard enough for my wife and I to picture getting our family of four out the door with clothes, shoes on at the right time without having to drag at least one person out kicking and screaming. Right? Never mind getting two million people, including a bunch of children, <laughs> out the doors, out of the land of Egypt all on the same night. This is a miracle. Right? It required, it was miraculous, but it also think about the faith that it required that God's people had. They took him at his word and they obeyed. The faith that the Israelites exercised was outstanding and nothing short of a miraculous God-given faith to hear and heed his word. Even so, though, the emphasis of this passage is not on their obedience. From start to finish, as I mentioned earlier, the focus of this passage is on God as the actor, God as the author and finisher of this great deliverance event. Their obedience, in other words, was not what led to their deliverance. Their obedience is not what led to their deliverance. God desired their obedience, but their obedience was not an end in itself. God wasn't primarily seeking to make them into an obedient people. Their obedience was not the end goal, it was a means to another end. In asking them to take him at his word, and obey him in in ways that required them to have courageous, sometimes outrageous faith. God was being very purposeful. He was shaping them into a certain kind of people. He was shaping them into a dependent people. And we see that after this event, the Israelites didn't leave Egypt and then start heralding themselves as those who had finally gotten themselves out of slavery. No, the focus of their worship was not on their outstanding obedience. Look what we did, we did it, we got it. Their focus was on the God who delivered them. It was God who had saved them by his merciful grace. Verse 51, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And here we see, I think, one of the cruxes of what God was showing his people. God was plundering not just the possessions of Egypt, but their gods, their whole way of life. He was establishing themselves, not just for Egypt though, but for all people everywhere as the one true God who alone was worthy of worship. He wasn't just a better version of these false gods. 
He was an altogether different kind of God. He was a God of love, a God of pursuit, a God of friendship, a God of care, a God who worked on behalf of his people, who wasn't expecting tribute from his people. He chased them down. He provided for them rather than demanding from them. He presented himself as the one who alone is able to preserve and deliver his people in their time of need. They couldn't do this on their own. They didn't do this on their own. They couldn't do this on their own. And furthermore, they hadn't done anything particularly meritorious, giving God a reason to choose them and deliver them. The message of this story for Israel is not, you have done these great things for God, you have listened to him, finally God can deliver you. No, the message for Israel is God has loved you, therefore you can take him at his word and watch as he leads you along this path of obedience, shaping you into a fully dependent, peace-filled follower of the one who is able to save. And that's another thing that I think we're intended to notice in this passage. Did you notice the contrast between the anxiety of the Egyptians, verses 30 and 33, and the calmness of God's people in the rest of the passage? The Egyptians cry out, right? The, the, this plague of the firstborn strikes and then Pharaoh sends to Moses and Aaron says, get out of here, go away. Verse 33, it says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. This is very emphatic language. And they said, their fear was, we shall all be dead. God hadn't threatened that. But they were just anxious. They were, they were up in arms. The Egyptians are fearful, worried they're all gonna die, and they press on the people to get out in haste. But then when we turn to the Israelites, we don't see language of hurriedness. It just says, so they took their dough before it was leavened. They asked the Egyptians for their stuff. And they then journeyed down from Ramesses, the city that they were building for the Egyptians, to, to, to Succoth. We get this picture, in other words, of God's people experiencing this peaceful calm. Even at the event of the Passover, back at the end of verse 27, we're told that the people were told these things about the Passover and they didn't run around screaming and jumping and yelling. It says, verse 27, they, the people bowed their heads and worshiped. They were at peace. And the events of this chapter, right at the heart of the Exodus event, this grand deliverance story, you get the picture not of some raucous event with lots of activity, shouting and fanfare, but you get the sense of this, the people of God quietly listening to God's word, saying, okay, we can do that. Okay, we can do that too. Okay, Lord, we can do that. God was shaping them into a people marked by peace, the peace that God created humanity to enjoy in the first place. He wanted them to be marked by peace, by trust, by wholehearted dependence on him, not themselves. Relying on what the eye can see, relying on our strength and what we're able to afford for ourselves leads to anxiety. What is it that Jesus said? He said, do not be anxious about anything. And then what does he point to? How are you gonna feed yourself? Are you gonna get clothes? Are you gonna find a place to live? Social scientists have said that we're in a really anxious moment in our culture right now. And they said, this is actually from 20 years ago, so I have to say, not right now. It's probably true though. They said that the most anxious people in our culture are the men. Time and again in surveys and research are the men who are the providers for their households. I was surprised when I saw that but that's it. Men are the most anxious people in our culture. And it was surprising to me in this study 
mentioned, of course, it's gonna be surprising to you because men never show it. We never talk about it. But when we focus on what we can see, what we can get, what we can earn, what we can provide, that leads to a life of anxiety. (laughs) But God was shaping his people back then saying, don't even prepare for this, I'm gonna provide for you. Jesus is saying that to you and to me. Don't be anxious, trust me, I will provide. One of the things Jesus said elsewhere was, what am I gonna leave you with? This is disciples, he said, he said, peace, I leave to you. Peace, Jesus, this, this kind of peaceful calm that we see in God's people here is, is the kind of peaceful calm that we see God, God bringing about by the power of his spirit and the presence of his spirit in the midst of his people is this peace, the sense of peace, of trust. That God is the provider. God was shaping them into a people marked by peace, by wholehearted dependence on him, and they did that. They trusted him. The book of Exodus begins with them crying out to God who they didn't know very well, and when he responded to them, guiding them with his word through the delivery he raised up for them, they took him at his word in a way that was truly miraculous, and they watched as God led them in this triumphal procession out of Egypt. And so while there's much that could be said in the, way, in, the, in the wake of that idea, the question is this, what, it's a very simple question, what is this for you? Where, where is God inviting you to take him at his word today? If you're a Christian in the room, if you've been a Christian for a long time, we, we see even in the, in the disciples of Jesus that his plan for them was that they'd be growing, they'd be learning to obey, they'd be constantly looking to take the next step of, of obedience to him, of trust to him. So the question is what, what is this, what is God calling you to trust him in today? What is the next step of obedience that will make you look more like Jesus that God is inviting you to take by his strength and his power? If you're not a Christian and you're in the room, like I said earlier, we're so glad that you're here. One of the things that we see in this passage is that God approaches, he draws near to his people through his word. And so as you consider the events of this story, the question is what, what is, what is God inviting you to do today? Perhaps he's inviting you to take the next step towards faith in him. What is this for you? Where is God inviting us to trust him with that. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna leave off my point three because it's all really good stuff. It's, I mean, believe me, it's so good. It's about the Passover and Jesus. (laughs) Here's what I'll say about that. Um, the end of the, our passage this morning ends with this story of Jesus talking, or not Jesus, wow, of, uh, of God telling Moses, um, verse 43, it's interesting to note the first thing that God says after he leads his people out of Egypt. Verse 43, God doesn't say, hey, celebrate, go throw a party. He doesn't say, hey, you guys just relax, do nothing. The first thing he points them to is he says, this is the statute of the Passover. And then he goes on to explain the Passover feast. 
It is a party in a sense. But I think one, one of the things that God does right at the end of this event is he gives them a way to remember it, a, a, a meal to remember it by. And one of the questions that we, we, we come to, I think, as we read this story, we read about this exodus, the, the story of the exodus, God has done these miraculous signs and wonders. He has delivered his people from the land of Egypt. You would think that this would be a people who wouldn't forget that God had delivered them from Egypt. Right? You would think that they would be a constantly worshiping, constantly fully dependent people on the God who saved them. But we see that right at the end of this, God gives them what he knows that they need. God knows the human heart. You see, left to our own devices, we don't stay in a place of trust. God had brought them to a miraculous place of outrageous faith and dependent trust. And he knew that tomorrow was gonna be another day with his cares and anxieties that would constantly be battling Warren to take their attention away from their dependence on the Lord. And so he gave them this meal, this Passover meal, this very intentionally, meticulously crafted meal to say, you need to follow this to a T with every detail pointing to them saying this is how you were delivered. You were delivered by blood. The blood of the lamb had to be smeared on the doorposts in order for the plague to pass you by so that you might be delivered out. You were delivered out in haste. He gave instructions about unleavened bread that they must keep eating unleavened bread year after year after year. And he said, you gotta do this for all your, throughout all your generations. Don't ever stop celebrating this Passover meal. Don't ever stop because you're gonna forget. You need this reminder. And the thing about a meal, and this is the thing about a meal, one thing about a meal that's really important for us to pause on is God gives us, it's important to notice that God gives them a meal with which to remember them. And the thing about a meal is every time we eat, if we allow ourselves to be reminded of this fact, um, every meal that we eat is a reminder that something has to die in order to give you life. God gave them a meal as families to come around the table and eat this meal to remember, listen, something has to die in order that you might have life. You had to kill the lamb in order to smear the blood on the doorposts and appeal to God saying, please pass over my house and my firstborn. And the Passover feast was always, of course, meant to point us to an event that happened 1,200, 1,400 years ago when Jesus was, was, had arrived, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, the son of God who came uh, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. He, he, he presented himself to Jerusalem. He brought himself to Jerusalem on the week of the Passover feast. It was the feast of unleavened bread. It was a week-long festival and at the heart, at the, at the, the pinnacle, um, the climax of the feast of unleavened bread was the Passover celebration. And it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you might recall, and he took the bread, the Passover loaf, and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then after supper, a little while later, he took the cup and he looked at his disciples in the eyes. Can you imagine sitting at that table with Jesus for a minute? He looked his disciples in the eyes and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Every time, God in this moment in Exodus chapter 12 gives them a feast with which to remember his deliverance that pointed forward to the greatest deliverance of all time. Jesus looked at his followers, the Messiah, the one sent for Israel and he said, I have got to die for you. You've been remembering this year after year after year after year and I'm here to tell you, this is, this is what this is for. It was the night that he was betrayed 
Less than 24 hours later, he was gonna be killed. He was gonna be dead. He said, remember this. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Every week when we, when we take communion, we say, we, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember the death of Christ, that, that one had to die, that we might be ushered in to a place of favor with God. And so in this story of the Exodus, in this story of, of the deliverance of God's people from the land of Egypt, we see that God describes himself very clearly as a God who works on behalf of his people, even when they don't see it. He forms his people into a people, not, but not, not a people of obedience so that they might earn themselves favor with God, but a people of obedience in a way that shapes them into a fully dependent people on an external authority, him, who alone is worthy of their worship. And then he gives them a meal to remember him by because he knows that they'll forget. Not forget in, our, in the sense that we often use that word, but they'll get distracted by other things. I need this time every Sunday. Um, brothers and sisters, I, I need this time. You need this time to be reminded week after week as the cares of your life, as the cares of all of our lives come and, and, and stack up on us. We need to be reminded sometimes with discipline. Hey, it's not what you can see. It's not what you can do. It's what has been done for you. Your life doesn't come from your hands. It comes from the spread hands of our savior who hang on a cross for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the picture that we get of you, a God who loves us, who works for us. A God who draws near to us and guides us. We ask God that through your word that you would make us a dependent people. I pray that you would get our eyes off of our own, or excuse me, get our minds off of our own eyes and what our eyes are telling us and get our minds set on our ear and what we have heard from you through your word. I pray that you would make us a people marked by faith in you and your word. So that we can sing along with that age old hymn, whatever may come, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. God, make us people who can sing that hymn, who can sing that song with our lives no matter what is coming about in our lives, giving us confidence that you are yet working in all things for our good. You are working in all things for your glory and for the ultimate good of all things. We love you, we trust you. Make us more like Jesus, captivate us with him who died that we might have life in a way that changes us and gives us the abundant life, more of the abundant life that you said, Lord Jesus that you came to give us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.